Hello and welcome to the Arms Control Poser Podcast. My name is William Albert, Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Berlin. I will be your host as we explore the world of arms control. On each podcast, I will interview the great and the good of the arms control community about a current event related to a treaty or agreement, past, present, or only proposed. Then together we will go, hopefully, deep enough on the history and functioning of the agreement to help you make sense of it all. And well, that's the idea anyway. This podcast is funded by the European Union Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium. Now let's get underway. All right, so welcome to the podcast. Today, our special guest is Mallory Stewart, the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Arms Control Verification and Compliance at the U.S. Department of State. And today we're going to talk about what's going on with the U.S.-Russia relationship, how we're doing today, and uh, you know what's the future moving forward. So welcome. Thank you very much for being here. I'm so glad to have you. Thank you so much, William. I'm, I'm so happy to be here with you. That's great. Okay. So, uh, so obviously terrible things are happening in the world of arms control today. You know, so we'll talk about the situation between U.S. and Russia. We'll talk about the arms control agreements that were meant to handle this and arms control, of course, in the widest definition possible. We'll talk about the current state of play, and then we'll talk about what we think about the future, where this is all going. So why don't you kick us off? Tell me, what is the current state of play, uh, especially regarding the control of U.S. and Russian nuclear weapons? Well, so, you know, as you implicated in your introduction, um, things are challenging right now, right? We have... A Russian government that has pulled out of, has suspended illegally and inappropriately and and deeply, unfortunately, the last remaining bilateral arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia. That government seems to implicate that the reason they can't fulfill their treaty obligations is because of the bad relationship with the United States uh, as a direct result of their continuing and inhumane illegal invasion of Ukraine. And so, you know, we, we have a challenge when a government sees the existing uh, geopolitical environment and challenges that they've created through their own invasion of another sovereign country as an excuse to get out, out of all treaty requirements. So that's a, a big challenge, especially for those arms control treaties that rely on an appreciation for international law and the sustainability and strength of international law. We are also trying to engage uh, in, in risk reduction talks with China to understand better what the implications of their opaque and, and really massive uh, nuclear stockpile buildup means uh, for, for their nuclear policies, for their no first use approach, and, and to reduce the risk of misunderstanding and miscalculation through better risk reduction mechanisms, such as the ongoing ability to address questions and, and policy considerations, and maybe include some efforts for launch notifications, some way to prevent uh, miscalculation and misunderstanding. So those are two of the biggest challenges we're working on right now, but you know, happy to go into more details. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the proximate cause, obviously, we had the Russians violating the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, what we know as INF. Full title is a lot longer. The Treaty Between the United States and the USSR on the Elimination of Intermediate and Shorter Range Missiles. And then, you know, the U.S. trying to get Russia to first admit that that happened and then try to push them into compliance, taking countermeasures, and then finally uh, declaring material breach and withdrawing in 2019. Uh, can you tell me a little bit, so, so what happened with New START? So, so first, 
Take us back to COVID and the cessation of inspections. And if you could pick it up from there, you know, what exactly has happened and where are we right now with the New START Treaty? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, our bottom line up front is that verifiable limits on, on Russian strategic nuclear forces remain in the U.S. national security interest. And, of course, verifiable limits on both Russia and U.S. strategic forces remained in the global security interest. And so just to be clear, our, our goal remains to bring Russia back into full compliance with the New START Treaty. But, you know, the background you asked about is that while the U.S. and Russia had successfully implemented New START Treaty for years, you know, including in uh, February of 2021, President Biden and President Putin decided to extend it for five years um, up to right, its right. its final allowed deadline, uh, uh, I mean, termination date of 2026, the maximum extension that the treaty provides for. So that was done in February of 2021, an agreement that was made under situations and circumstances that Russia claims have somehow changed, even though at the time Russia was fully aware of the nuclear stockpiles of P3 partners, um, which now they're claiming are relevant to their ability to implement New Start, just one of their many justifications for their illegal suspension. So we had fully implemented, but starting in the summer of 2022, when the COVID situation had lifted to the degree that we believed inspections could proceed, the Bilateral Consultative Commission could meet again in person, given that we, had, we were able to address the security concerns the pandemic uh, had led to in preventing inspections and the BCC from meeting in person during the previous years. At that time, Russia began to pick and choose which provisions of the treaty would implement. Um, and the situation has only really gone downhill with Russia in, invalidly purporting to suspend the entire treaty in February of this year. So from our perspective, Russia is clearly not fulfilling its obligation to facilitate uh, the New START inspection activities on Russian territory. It's not providing its obligatory data exchanges and notifications. Uh, it is refusing its obligation to meet with us in the treaty's implement implementation body, again, the Bilateral Consul Consultative Commission. And in response to these violations, the United States has adopted lawful countermeasures for the purpose of persuading Russia to return to compliance with the, the treaty itself. So these measures basically have the effect of denying Russia the benefit of its violations. So we will decline to provide Russia our updated uh, New START database unless Russia has reciprocated as it was obligated to do so. And we recently cut off New START notifications, including notifications about the change in status of treaty accountable items in, in a manner that was equivalent to uh, Russia's suspension of these notifications uh, months before. So I just want to stress that the steps we are taking are reversible uh, should Russia return to compliance, what they hope, we hope they will. And of course, we're fully prepared to work constructively with Russia on a path back to full implementation of the agreement. But uh, it's, it's unclear to us that any of these actions are having effect. And we appreciate the international community's focus on the need for us to actively return to New START implementation in the interest of both U.S. and Russian national security and global security. Just on countermeasures, it, I mean, it's worth saying, so countermeasures are things that you can do that are considered, that might be considered a violation of the treaty in order to, to induce the other party to return to full compliance. Is that right? I, I remember this from the CFE yeah. treaty back in 2007 when Russia stopped implementing the treaty illegally and, you know, we had to take countermeasures back then. Yeah, so it's, 
it's a concept that's accepted under international law for the purposes of trying to encourage treaty partners that are um, suspending or ceasing to perform treaty required activity illegally to encourage them to return to compliance. So these are equivalent measures that are proportionate to the actions the illegally violating treaty partner um, that are taken to encourage that treaty partner to return to the treaty compliance. Right. And now with the CFE, of course, that hasn't worked. And now Russia has announced that they're going to withdraw from that treaty. Are there any other legally available countermeasures that the U.S. can take to try to push Russia back into compliance? Or, or is this pretty much all that we can do at this stage? No, there are additional countermeasures we can take. Certainly, the advantage of trying to explain the countermeasures and trying to keep them to a certain degree uh, related directly to the activities of Russia is to encourage them to appreciate the need for this information in stabilizing our relationship and appreciate the value of New Start to them as well in terms of preventing you know, misunderstanding and misperception of strategic forces, um, but also allowing for predictability. And so there are additional countermeasures that are available to us. Again, we will see how these are received rolling forward. Our our final round of countermeasures was just implemented on June 1st, but there are additional measures available. And I, and I will note that Russia is still committed to adhering to the New START Treaty Central Limits. They've actually publicly committed to that. And they've also committed to continuing to provide missile launch notifications under the 1988 Ballistic Missile Launch Notification Agreement and providing strategic exercise notifications under the 1989 Agreement on Advanced Notification of Major Strategic Exercises. So they value these stability mechanisms, they value the New START Treaty Central Limits, and we're trying to explain why you know, the additional parameters and requirements of New START are also deeply in their interest um, and a requirement to adhere to pursuant to both treaty obligations and international, international pressure and international interest. Are you concerned that Russia might choose to exceed the limits of the treaty or or otherwise violate it during this period? I think that's always a concern, and we will certainly uh, keep close watch on this issue. Of course, our willingness to continue to adhere to the central limits for the duration of the New START Treaty persists as long as Russia does so as well. So we need to understand exactly what's going on. And we're very, very concerned about this, given that Russia has violated nearly all other arms control obligations. It's something that we need to focus on. And you mentioned there are other guardrails in place in terms of keeping some kind of risk reduction in place. And you mentioned the 1988 agreement on notification of launches of ballistic missiles, which people sometimes call the BMA or Ballistic Missile Agreement, and the 1989 Reciprocal Advance Notification of Matrix Exercises. And I mean, there's also other measures like the INC agreements that are still in place. So are you confident that Russia is still complying with these agreements? And have you seen notifications coming through since they've suspended New START under these agreements? Yeah, so you're right in that we're looking for notifications under these agreements regularly to make sure that Russia is continuing. But we, you know, we feel confident given that Russia has publicly said they will continue, that we will keep seeing notifications. So the 1988 Ballistic Missile Launch Notification Agreement provides that notification no less than 24 hours in advance of a planned intercontinental ballistic missile or submarine launch ballistic missile um, launch would be received by the U.S. in advance of such launches by Russia. The notification must include information on the launch area and the area of impact. 
We understand that Russia has intended and stated its intent to comply, and it has done so with that agreement as well as the 1989 agreement on reciprocal advanced notifications. So, you know, we think we're in a situation in which they appreciate the value of these agreements. You know, the Russians uh, must provide under the 1989 agreement on reciprocal advanced notification and major strategic exercises. They have to provide notification no less than 14 days in advance of a major strategic force exercise. That includes the participation of heavy bomber aircraft. And again, Russia has publicly stated it will continue to to implement this agreement. So for now, we think these two agreements will continue to be implemented. In fact, we've seen uh, notifications of ballistic missile launches, and we expect to continue to see those. Okay, yeah. And and I guess the big test is on the other agreement will be the annual exercise they conduct called GROM, which is Russian for thunder. That's usually their annual strategic exercise. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if we, we read about it in the press you've received a notification 14 days before it actually begins. Yeah, I mean, we'll be watching for that. That's really important, I think. What about, I guess, the other avenue would be, are there other avenues where you're able to talk to the Russians about these issues? Uh, Are you meeting in something like the P5 format or other bilateral meetings, you know, maybe in Geneva or Vienna or New York? Is there still a line of dialogue occurring maybe off the radar right now? Yeah, absolutely. We are continuing to meet in the P5 format. We think this is very important at the expert level to engage, to discuss policies and potential risk reduction efforts going forward. It's something that, you know, we're we're doing on a continuing basis with the entire P5 and hopefully able to push forward opportunities to understand better each other's policies and to engage substantively on risk reduction and to answer questions, really. I mean, this is this is a process that's continuing at the expert level away from the spotlight. And the P5 in this context can do more to use dialogue and transparency and hopefully even cooperative arrangements to manage nuclear risks and arms race pressures. Uh, so we are certainly pushing on that front. We also engage in the multilateral context uh, with both Russia and China to try to push forward risk reduction opportunities and arrangements. And so we will continue to make these efforts and we must continue to push forward as required from responsible nuclear weapons. That there's an obligation to meet uh, within the P5. Yes, exactly. And, and it's, it's something that nuclear weapon states, I think, uh, should, should carry forward responsible activities such as discussing risk reduction and uh, how to fulfill disarmament obligations moving forward. So is, is it a challenge in the P5? I mean, on the one hand, you want to engage Russia and China both in an arms control conversation, but at the same time, the UK and the Fran- France uh, you know, have different views on how they fit in. As you mentioned before, Russia wanting to pull the UK and France into multilateral arms control. Uh, so is it a challenge to address arms control in that context, or do you find that, that it's easy or it's a good top topic to raise within the P5? Yeah, I mean, I think nothing is easy right now, but in the P5 context, we can at least lay the groundwork for why risk reduction and, and the efforts to understand each other's policies and positions is so important for all of us. So you know, certainly not suggesting any of this is easy, but it's a context that is established pursuant to the NPT to really engage in some important dialogues and and to work towards some constructive forward progress. And I note that Jake Sullivan has made some public statements recently, including that he was open to talk to Russia without preconditions. 
I've seen mixed reporting in terms of how that was received by Russia, but also Sullivan and, and, and you know, the entire U.S. government has been clear that they do want arms control discussions with China. Can you tell me anything about where are you in terms of talking to China about arms control? We all recall uh, Marshall Billingsley and the photograph of the Chinese flags, which didn't go down very well during the Trump administration. And there have been increased allied calls, uh, allies and partners around the world calling for China to engage with the United States in arms control. But can you tell me anything about where you are today with that process? Is there, is there an open channel to talk about arms control with China? And has China been receptive at all to these calls? So, I mean, you're right that PRC has been reluctant to substantively engage on, on practical measures to reduce risk. But we're hopeful that we're, there certainly will be, continue to be opportunities to engage. And the United States has repeatedly expressed its willingness to engage in bilateral arms control and risk reduction discussions uh, with the PRC without preconditions. We, as I mentioned, engage uh, the PRC in existing multilateral fora, such as the NPT review process and the P5 process. But in speaking about his recent trip to China, Secretary Blinken referred to efforts to establish ways of reducing risks of escalation due to miscommunication and misunderstanding as a work in progress. And so we have to keep working. And, and we, we really hope that Beijing will be willing to engage substantively on strategic nuclear issues, on risk reduction on the importance of responsible behavior in emerging technologies that could have strategic effect or important for understanding sort of our use of these technologies to reduce their risks, especially in the military domain. And we have some international and, and multilateral efforts right now that we think would really value and benefit from Chinese participation engagement and sort of working with us to help clarify the Chinese perspective on, for example, the use of artificial intelligence in the military domain or the development of responsible behaviors in outer space, such as the prohibition on direct ascent, ASAT testing that creates debris. And these are two areas that I think we could really uh, learn from and appreciate China's involvement and, and discussion with us. And I think it would start laying the path towards how we achieve greater risk reduction understanding across the board. I think it's so important. And, you know, I, I recall there was an effort in the 90s to engage China and there was an agreement to, you know, try to further elaborate uh, risk reduction tools. There was the effort under the Obama administration to get actual INCSI type agreements in place, one for the air and one for the sea. But China has been a little tricky on this because from what I understand, they won't implement such measures within territory that they claim. So for instance, in the nine dash line, the very places where the US might encounter Chinese ships in dangerous circumstances are the very ones that it appears China is not willing to do risk reduction on. So, uh, you know, in that context, do you, do you see engagement in other domains where China has been willing to, to lean more forward into a solid discussion that could lead to real risk reduction measures, as you mentioned, in uh, outer space or in artificial intelligence or in new technologies? Anything where they appear to be willing to talk about guardrails? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we are going to keep pushing, right? We in the arms control mm -hmm. space have to be be flexible and creative and willing to engage, you know, in multilateral efforts, whether that's trying to discuss rules of responsible behavior in space or uh, in the use of AI in the military context, whether that's through the P5, using dialogue, uh, using unilateral efforts to be transparent, which the U.S. does in large part more than any other nuclear weapon state, and trying to sort of demonstrate that our efforts 
are really for both our own national security, but for the collective and global national security, and are also in in China's interest to prevent misunderstanding and miscalculation. So, you know, it, it may not be satisfying initially, but small steps like communication channels or transparency on doctrines can actually make an important contribution to laying the groundwork for comprehensive risk reduction and arms control approaches. So we we will continue to push. We have made, I think, some progress in having good interactions in the multilateral context. We're really interested in understanding China's approach to the use of AI um, in the military sphere. And they've said some interesting things about that in their in their digital economies uh, documents, but also in their um, in their messaging at the Hague Reaim conference that happened in February of this year. And I think we would be curious to learn more on their positions. And I think there is some there was some strong progress to be made, both in the space arena and in the use of emerging technologies, hopefully to lay the groundwork for, for broader understanding. This is a good place to take a quick break. When I come back, I'll continue my conversation with Assistant Secretary Mallory Stewart. You're listening to the Arms Control Poser podcast. What's next? I mean, what are your big priorities? I saw that there was a strategic framework for space diplomacy. I know you're working very hard, uh, as you mentioned, on the ban or the the abjuration of direct ascent anti-satellite missile tests. But you've got an ambitious set of priorities here, trying to renew talks with Russia, trying to get China to the table. How are you prioritizing right now? What what, is, what are you devoting the most of your time and focus? in the short term? What are, you, what are you really hoping to get off the ground, say, by the end of this year? Yeah, I mean, it's a really useful question to address. First, from the background of what our U.S. National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan's speech really helped lay out and define, which is the lessons that we've learned from years of engaging in arms control and risk reduction. So, you know, I, I want to start with those lessons because I think they're important to lay down, right? That specifically, Jake Sullivan pointed out that the U.S. does not need to deploy ever more dangerous weapons to maintain deterrence. Our effective deterrence means that we have a better approach, not a, quote, more approach. And, you know, he really emphasized that this is the moment to turn a challenge into a moment of possibility. And so at this inflection point in our nuclear security and stability, we need to look for new strategies, new creative ways, you know, that we sort of learn from the past, but build upon it in a way that can supplement and strengthen arms control. And, you know, in working to reduce nuclear dangers, engagement is essential. And that includes engagement on new and emerging technologies and uh, engagement on what responsible behaviors are and, and where the international community can find consensus and can agree on where good activities are happening and where to define an appreciation for responsible and transparent and positive activities so that in these new domains that are gray, we can understand where negative activities are happening, where irresponsible behavior is is happening so that we can try to shine a light on it and prevent it, or at least hold it accountable going forward. I think these are important sort of future activities for the U.S. and, and for all of our partners and allies to help 
stabilize both the global community and the global security environment, but also outer space and the digital environment and what's happening in so many of the new domains that really can't be easily uh, watched and understood without defining some of these responsible behaviors and, and being more transparent and shining a light on what's actually going on. And so these are the efforts that we will pursue in addition to traditional mechanisms of treaties, verifiable treaties where possible, if possible, but to continue to try to stabilize security environments in, in all potentially destabilized domains by defining responsible behaviors and, and holding accountable those behaviors that are inconsistent with those globally accepted uh, normative contexts that really, you know, in reflecting, for example, 155 countries agreeing that direct ascent ASAT testing that creates debris is not responsible behavior, we, have, we now have a platform to push forward and really hopefully prevent that kind of behavior uh, from happening. And I think that's a good model to build on. In the absence of treaties, we've been able to make progress, and we should continue to push for that while we use all the mechanisms in the arms control sphere to stabilize and hopefully prevent the risks that are continuing to build from the lack of transparency and the lack of understanding. I think that's really important. In a way, it's almost as though the field of arms control or arms control practitioners have almost harmed themselves by focusing too much on, you know, the only real arms control is, you know, a reduction agreement between the U.S. and Russia on nuclear weapons. Everything else is nonsense. Whereas it is so important to build rules and norms to to understand and to develop global consensus on an area like outer space where escalation could get out of hand very easily, where misinterpretations could occur or where countries could seek to deny the benefits of the peaceful uses of outer space to other countries or other actors. So all these things that are you know really about arms control, really are about reducing risk, really are about reducing conflict are incredibly important, but they get they get brushed aside and people say, well, arms control is dead. Do you find that, that same kind of uh, frustration when you're talking to people about the much broader toolkit that we have to actually address absolutely. peace and stability? I mean, absolutely, William, and thank you for making that point. I mean, I feel like at this, at this time when the risks are so heightened by you know, the illegal aggression we see by the continuing um, lack of transparency and the, the ripe environment for miscalculation. This is when arms control is all the more important. The pursuit of arms control reflecting a recognition of the necessity, the value and the importance of international law and international norms and of responsible behaviors and other cooperative or even unilateral measures for mitigating some of the most dangerous and destabilizing elements of, of global competitions, of continued aggression. We need to work right now to use all the tools. Treaties, great, but even beyond treaties in the multilateral uh, and, and the bilateral sphere to prevent the misunderstanding and to prevent the continued unintentional escalation and really unnecessary and costly arms races. You know, the United States has taken many steps in recent years to strengthen transparency and predictability in the nuclear space. And we believe that while nuclear weapons exist, all nuclear weapon states have not only the obligation to pursue negotiations in good faith on effective measures relating to nuclear disarmament, but also this broader role to play as responsible actors. And, you know, the P3 was able to roll out responsible nuclear behaviors during the last NPT conference. And I think we should build upon these responsible behaviors and measures that are stabilizing to hopefully 
push forward so that all nuclear weapon states are demonstrating a commitment to nonproliferation, disarmament, and creating the condition for further arms control uh, measures and disarmament going forward. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And, and you know, I, I think there's nowhere that this approach is more emblematic, more, you know, the headline uh, than in Geneva in the Conference on Disarmament, whose agenda, you know, has been held up you know, for forever because it's either, you know, FISM uh, material cutoff treaty or nothing. And I do think we need to look at arms control, nonproliferation disarmament in such a such a more broad way. And there is a lot of really good work to do. And I applaud you for, for trying, for getting in there and for trying to change people's minds and to focus them on what's actually doable rather than either to demand everything and stall or to say, well, it's all over and to pick up your toys and go home. There's so much that we can all do together, and I think it's really important that we keep advancing the cause. So so really, thank you for everything that you do, and, and thank you for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate the broad view of arms control that you've just reflected as well, because we should look at arms control as everything that encompasses even unilateral transparency, unilateral steps. It's great when you can talk about cooperative measures, but I think you know, I would view our, our ability to shine a light, to provide for space situational awareness, what folks are doing in space, our ability to release updated declassified data for the U.S. nuclear stockpile, all of these efforts at transparency and to lead in responsible behaviors and to provide attribution and accountability. They're all tools of arms control that go beyond treaties that are relevant to defense and deterrence that help us prevent the effectiveness of the harmful disinformation that's ubiquitous. And so looking at arms control as a, as a space that provides broad tools and broad support for all of the stabilizing efforts that we're pursuing, even in the defense and deterrence arena, I think is really important moving forward. So thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I've, I've really appreciated it. And, and thanks so much for your partnership in this effort. Oh, that's great. And so that's the end of part one. When we come back in part two, we're going to hear a little bit from Mallory about her life and how she got to this point and this sort of incredible job that she's doing uh, in Washington. So we'll be back in just a second. Now we're back. This is part two of the podcast today with our guest, Mallory Stewart. So Mallory, this is the part of the podcast where I try to talk to our guest about their career and how they got here. Because often when I'm talking to younger people who are interested in arms control, they want to know how to get in the field. And there's this concern that there's really, you know, one or two right ways to do it. Uh, and I just want to, you know, make it clear that there are many, many different pathways to arms control. And I think you've got a, as with so many people, you've got a unique story. So if you could tell me a little bit, so how did you first get interested in arms control? Was this a topic that you were watching from afar or the U.S.-Russian sort of nuclear standoff that got you interested? Or how did you come into this field? What interested you at first? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. My, my focus on arms control was really a result of my work in the legal advisor's office of the U.S. State Department on treaties. So I came to the field from the legal arena. I was a lawyer for many years in the State Department, starting in 2002, and moved around the legal advisor's office. They encourage you to move between 
legal fields. And I landed in the treaties office for a long period of time and really loved, you know, the the legal aspects and the fascinating both domestic and international implications of treaties work. But the area that was most interesting to me was the arms control arena and the nonproliferation field. They're very closely related, of course, in the treaty space. So I was able to focus on those treaties and provide assistance to the Arms Control Bureau as their treaty lawyer. That helped develop my interest in the field. And I ultimately moved into the Arms Control Legal Office, directly supporting the Bureau, and then ultimately was asked to join the Bureau as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Emerging Security Challenges and Defense Policy as a direct result of my continuing interest over several years, both in the treaties and then in the legal issues that are specific to the arms control arena. So I I feel like my path was not as direct as many people who come into this field. It did have a lot to do with uh, luck and being in the right place at the right time. But my love for this issue really developed over a period of time coming at it from really interesting enough, the treaties angle, an angle that unfortunately is being diminished right now in the arms control space. Well, let's, well, let's back up a little bit. So how did you get into the State Department itself? You came in, you said, to the Office of the Legal Advisor after yeah. serving as a lawyer. Were you in a private firm? or, or let's go? Actually, let's go all the way back. So where did you go to uh, undergraduate? <laughs> so I went to Harvard uh, undergraduate, and then I went to Stanford Law School. And oh, while I clerked for a year focusing on the federal border issues, actually, of immigration. And there were a lot of uh, drug issues and immigration federal crimes that I dealt with in the San Diego arena. I was in the Southern District of California clerking. I ultimately ended up in Sullivan Cromwell because of their international legal practice and their focus on really strong litigation efforts. And two of my cases were directly with or against, actually, the State Department uh, Legal Advisor's Office. And so learning and watching them interact and understanding sort of how the legal advisor uh, utilized its junior attorneys was really helpful. And when an opportunity came to do a lateral transfer, I moved from Sullivan Cromwell to the Legal Advisor's Office and then really never looked back. So that was 2002 and continued in the State Department until the end of the Obama administration. When you were clerking, were you at that point thinking about working for government or or were you thinking of political office? Were you really hoping to get to the State Department at some point? What was your initial ambitions coming into the law? Yeah, I mean, sadly, my exposure to the State Department was quite limited prior to coming to D.C. with Sullivan and Cromwell. I tangentially knew about the uh, legal advisors program, but didn't know nearly enough about it to realize that I could get in as, as a junior attorney. And so I was interested in government work, certainly, though the easiest path, I think, both to pay off uh, law school loans, but also to be extensively trained and learn as much as possible about the legal practice is often through the law firms. Um, and so Sullivan Cromwell was a great opportunity to be really well trained, but also to learn huge amount of how um, the law firms engage with both government and international actors. So it provided a good opportunity. It brought me to D.C. and it really did expose me to those government lawyers that we worked with in ongoing cases in the international context. So was you said it was a transfer. I mean, was there a job description or was there some kind of program that brought you into the State Department from the law firm? What was what was the actual mechanism that got you into the federal government? Well, interesting. At that time, there was a sort of lateral hiring process, which I think exists now that sometimes comes available when the legal advisor's office is looking for 
lawyers that have some amount of training, not those directly from law school. And the State Department lawyers I work with mentioned that the legal advisor's office was hiring. So it was actually just through the open listing from the legal advisor's office of an interest in hiring lawyers that had some experience that I was able to apply and go through the process. Things may have changed since then. It was now over 20 years ago. But I understand they still hire both directly from law school, but also they do have some lateral hiring capacity. So I would just recommend those people that are interested to keep an eye out for available listings, both on the Legal Advisors website, but also through USA Jobs. That's fantastic advice. So when you first came into the State Department, that was a little bit of a rough period for arms control. Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration was not particularly known for being enamored with it. I remember John Bolton saying that arms control is how small countries control weak countries, really kind of fundamentally misunderstanding arms control. But that was when the U.S. had withdrawn from ABM. I think they ratified open skies in 2002. So did you find it a challenge to come into this issue at a time sort of a flux of the U.S. arms control policies? I mean, you know, it's an interesting question. I I think I wasn't thinking about it as clearly back then, but I did recognize the challenge to the risk reduction model of a diminished focus on it, potentially by some in the U.S. government or by heightened tensions that existed in the global community, in my mind, just led to a deeper value for those treaties that were remaining for that international legal structure that provided stability and predictability. So, you know, looking back on it, I think it's the challenging times in which you have to support the the arms control and international legal structures that arms control represents even more. And so, it may have been that resulted in my appreciation for the value of this arena even more. And so what's next for you? Where do you see yourself going next? Do you want to continue within the State Department? Would you like to transfer within the U.S. government? Maybe uh, look at one of the the specialized posts like Geneva or Vienna or New York? What's the future for Mallory? (laughs) It's a good question. I don't have that much time these days to think about it. I think my main goal is to try to support you know, support this issue space and support risk reduction as much as possible and wherever I can feed into that process, right? I will certainly stay in this position as long as the U.S. government will have me. It is a dream job, even though, of course, it's very difficult. But going forward, I think wherever I can be of most value to support what is a crucial element of international law and a crucial element of international relations, which is our ability to prevent unintentional escalation through arms control toolkits. That's where I'll want to be. So sorry, no good answer. I'm, I'm still no, figuring okay. it out. Um, That's right. yeah. <laughs> but I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But, but, um, but why don't we close with, if you could give one piece of advice to a young person similar to yourself, graduating from law with an eye towards eventually having a position that maybe not as fantastic as yours, but you know, being able to serve in the government, being able to make a difference either for their national government or for an international organization in this field. Is there a bit of advice that you would have given yourself that would have helped back then that you could give to young people today who are interested in coming into the yeah, field? You know, it's, it's a question that I get a lot and I give the same answer. Um, and I've given the same answer for many years, but I still think it's the one that I think is valuable, which is you can't necessarily predict where there's going to be a lucky break or an opportunity that you hadn't anticipated. 
all you really can do is try to find something that, you know, drives you, that inspires you, something that you love to focus on and develop your expertise in. And if you can continue to do that in one particular field that makes you feel you can constantly learn, that's fabulous. But if you feel that you have to move to a different field to continue to learn and to continue to grow and to find your interest area, then do that. But the overarching message for me is try to follow your interest and do what you love because that will be appreciated by others. I can provide examples. I I thought I wanted to be a lawyer for many, many years. I then found, you know, the arms control and nonproliferation issue space fascinating and I wanted to learn everything about it. And so I dove in as a lawyer to that issue space. And ultimately, I think my appreciation and interest in this arena was luckily, uh, I think, recognized and rewarded because I was promoted into the field. But that wasn't guaranteed. And all I can say is that even if it hadn't happened, I would follow this issue and, and certainly deeply appreciate the value of arms control for the international community and for U.S. national security specifically. And so even if we can't predict where those uh, lucky breaks will come, if you're doing something you love, you know, that will be a reward to a certain degree. And this may be unsatisfying, but to a certain degree, you could be satisfied even without those lucky breaks. And hopefully, by doing something you love, more opportunities will come for you to progress further. Because I think people value, you know, those of us that find what we want to spend the rest of our lives doing, and that will be promoted and appreciated regardless of the lucky breaks themselves. And so, again, it may be not as not as easy as, as a piece of advice for many, including my kids that ask me, you know, how do I pursue my dreams? Because you can't rely on lucky breaks. But I think if you're doing something you love, then at least you'll have the reward of appreciating and, and valuing your day-to-day experience and your opportunity to continue to grow. So <laughs> it's my roundabout way of saying do what you love and hopefully success will find you, if not certainly satisfaction with your career. Well, I think that's beautifully put and a fantastic place to end things. Mallory Stewart, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and good luck in all of your work. Thank Thank you you. so much, William. It's been a pleasure and thank you for speaking with me. That's all we have time for today. My thanks once again to Mallory Stewart for being our guest. Thank you to the European Union Nonproliferation and Disarmament Consortium for funding this podcast. And thank you to B. Aubrey Freeman for the wonderful music. Please check the program notes for links to his website, as well as other key websites. Hope to see you next time. I'm William Albert. Have a great day. again.